It's a lot of people missing today. I just figured they probably heard that I was preaching or something. So. <laughs> happens all the time, right? Yeah. Uh, if you recall, earlier in January, as leadership, we laid out kind of a three-part uh, goal direction for us for 2017. Uh, we talked about upreach, outreach, and proclamation. Upreach, talking about prayer and intimacy with God and worship. Uh, outreach, talking about discipleship and evangelism and unity, those kind of things. And, and if you think back, that's really been the majority of the sermons over the last couple of years is focused on one of those things uh, because we see that as pretty, uh, pretty important. But at this point, we're not ignoring those, but we feel like uh, proclamation is just a, a major thing that we need to look at, proclaiming the, the truth of God's word over and above our circumstances and situations, even over and above our experiences. We believe that the, the word is powerful, it's alive, it's going to accomplish the thing that God sent it forth to do. Jeremiah I love this word that God spoke through him is not my word like fire declares the Lord and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. See, we believe that the, the faithful proclamation of God's word is going to act like a, a fire and burn up things that are not of God. It's going to act like a hammer and, and destroy the, the lies of the enemy. So we've talked about that concept for several weeks and now we believe it's time to actually do it, to put it into practice, if you will. So we're going to be proclaiming God's word over and above our situations and circumstances in several specific areas. And the first one is marriage. And uh, Wayne actually started this last week. He talked about proclamation within marriage. And today what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually um, take it a, a step further and proclaim the word of God into and over our marriages because we believe it's going to cause a difference. And, and we're, not, we're not doing this, we're not on this trek here, if you will, because we think there's a problem. Now, obviously, we have had to address this leadership a couple of issues over the, the last, not, not so distant past. Um, but at the same time, we feel like this is a really solid thing for us in general. And bolstering something that is generally good is probably a good idea. So kind of our, our thinking on that, if you will. And along with it, you know, when else do you hear, when do you hear messages about sermons about marriage, except at a wedding? You just don't. Um, you know, you, you, on the radio, you'll hear some nice things about it, okay? But I'm talking about from a pulpit on Sunday morning. I can't even remember the last time we had a message, a sermon about marriage here in this church. And I'm not saying that's a, an awful thing. I am saying that, you know, Scripture seems to indicate that, that marriage and family is the building block of society and even the church. And so if it's that important, we think we need to talk about it. So we want the, the truth of God's words to, to, to permeate and penetrate our hearts anew and afresh in this area. And for those of you uh, who aren't married, we're not trying to purposely exclude you, but if marriage really is as important as uh, the Bible indicates, seems like something that perhaps we ought to look at, um, and some here who are not married ultimately eventually will be married, and so you need to know some of these things, but even if you're not, um, you are still part of the body of Christ, and you need to help 
us who are married be accountable to these things. That's part of all of our jobs, whether we're married or not, to be, help one another be accountable to God's word. So all of this, just letting you understand kind of the thinking behind this. So I've entitled this message, Marriage Done God's Way. Let's pray. Lord, today, as we, as we look at your word, we're inviting you to speak into our lives. Lord, would you, would you cause the fire of your word to burn away any wrong thinking? Would you, would you cause the hammer of your word to, to destroy the lies that we might have believed in this area? Lord, would you, in your mercy, cause us to see anew and afresh from, with your eyes, from your perspective, here today? And Lord, we thank you that you will because you're faithful. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You know, according to our culture, our society, marriage is fluid. It can take lots of different shapes and forms. And honestly, if marriage is simply a, a, a human construct, if it's just something that, that people have come up with on their own, then what we do with it or don't do with it is of little consequence. I mean, really. If it's just something that people have come up with, then, then ending it, altering it, marrying somebody of the same gender, marrying something that's not even human, marrying multiple partners, all of those are within the realm of feasibility if it's just something that people came up with on their own. But if marriage is not a human idea, if it really is something that God came up with, if it really is of divine origin, if you will, then we don't have the option of altering it or changing it. It has to follow God's rules. It has to be fat, patterned after his design. Jesus said it pretty clearly in Mark chapter 10. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You know, without going into every passage about marriage in the Bible, this one makes it pretty clear. One man, one woman for a lifetime. It's pretty obvious. And as we look at this whole issue, I think that concept needs to be the, the foundation, the core, the bedrock, if you will. Marriage is not something that we've come up with. It's God's institution. It was God's idea. So as we look at this whole idea, then that has to be in the back of our minds. We have to keep that in our brains that it is God's idea. See, the Lord wants marriages to work and work correctly even more than we do. It was, after all, his plan, his design, okay? So let me take you down a path that it's different, but I think it's going to help us to see this whole issue uh, from a different perspective. I personally... I'm really fascinated by the symbolism that we see in Scripture. There is so much symbolism throughout Scripture that allows us to see things in a way that we otherwise probably wouldn't. One of my favorite examples of this is the, the Old Testament story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt, going into the Promised Land. I mean, there are so many symbolic things in that that parallel our life as New Testament believers. And so many of those things allow us to see from a perspective that we probably wouldn't see had not that symbolism been, been there. Are you with me? And I think that's one of the reasons that God gives us that symbolism. You can see it all throughout the Bible. But one of my, what I believe is one of the, the most profoundly symbolic books in the whole Bible 
is the book of Hosea. And by saying it's a symbolic book, I'm not suggesting that it's not true. It's one of those true stories that God uses in a symbolic way to convey truth that we probably wouldn't otherwise see. Have you ever read the book of Hosea? It's this unlikely, even ridiculous story of a prophet called by God to marry a harlot, a prostitute, somebody who willingly sells herself for material gain. That scenario is so absurd, it offends our sensibilities. How, how could God possibly have thought this was a good idea? He, how, could he, how could he push his prophet, one of his chosen mouthpieces here on earth, into a, what, what is clearly an absurd and horrific relationship? The whole idea is crazy beyond belief. But if you read the story of Hosea, there's this narrative that kind of weaves back and forth between Hosea and his prostitute wife and God and his people Israel and how they have chosen to play the harlot, if you will. The symbolism that we see in the book of Hosea is nothing short of amazing from my perspective. I mean, first, Hosea redeems this prostitute, marries her, provides for her needs, takes care of her. And then she ups and leaves. But rather than, rather than just letting her go, which, which would be our way of thinking, I mean, there's, there's, why on earth would you even pursue this woman? He goes after her. He buys her back. He brings her back home. And he loves her. He pursues her even though from our worldly perspective there is nothing there worth pursuing, right? And along with that, if you read the, the book of Hosea, not only is there, there this, this back and forth narrative between the, the physical life of Hosea and his wife and the, the spiritual life of Israel, but there's also this, this recurring theme that keeps popping up. And I guess the, the best way that I could describe this for you would be that if you were, if there, was a, if there was a musical background playing in your mind while you're reading the book of Hosea, I think throughout much of the book, it would be this thrasher, punk rock, hard driving, uh, gotcha on the edge of your seat, heart pounding, even making you afraid sometimes, music going on. I mean, the... The, the ongoing and deep sins of the people are depicted over and over and over and over. The Lord's adulterous wife, Israel, is repeatedly shown in compromising situations. And, and you know, if it was just once, we might be able to understand. But it happens again and again and again and again. And so there's this, what I think, this musical background hard-driving, tension-building through, through much of the 14 chapters of the book of Hosea. But every so often, and I think with pretty good bit of regularity, there's another musical theme. But this one's different. It's calming, it's gentle, it's soothing. It's got this, this wooing to it, if you will. And it's so different 
from the other music that we can't help but notice the contrast. It's a, it's a love song, but it's, but it's a love song that puts all other love songs to shame. No love song that you and I have ever heard compares to this one. This is the love song of all love songs. This is not the, the groom calling out to his young and beautiful, innocent bride, I love you. This is not Michael McDevitt looking into the eyes of Lydia and whispering, I love you. No, this love song is different. This is the groom who has been spurned over and over and over again, looking through tear-filled eyes at his bride in her sullied garments as she once again opens her arms to other men. And still... He says, I love you as no one has ever loved anyone in the history of mankind. I love you. This is a crazy and absurd love song that we hear. And it's so, so gentle, so caring, and has so much depth that you and I can scarcely fathom it. Just a couple of sections out of so many throughout the book of Hosea. And, and in each of these, apparently the, the, the people are still, as the word says, whoring. They're still running headlong in the other direction and God is still calling out, I love you. Hosea 2, therefore behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Chapter 11, yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms and they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws and I bent down to them and fed them. Chapter 14, I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. There's this love, this wooing, this calling out over and over and over. And that's what God does to us when we're running full speed in the opposite direction. He's calling out, I love you. When we're trying to, trying to cover our ears and not listen, He's saying, I love you. The story that we see in the book of Hosea to me is crazy. It's completely upside down and backward from our normal way of thinking. See, we love people who are worthy. We love people who will love us back. We love people who will graciously and kindly and willingly receive that love that we're offering. But God, He's different. He loves those who turn from Him. He loves the rebellious as well as the faithful. And that's what Hosea shows us again and again and again. And here's why I think this is so important in this context. It wasn't an accident that God chose the marriage relationship as being symbolic of his relationship with us. And that's why St. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
You know, honestly, I think every married man should tremble when he reads those words. I really do. What an awesome responsibility you and I have been charged with. And by awesome, I do not mean cool. One of the definitions of awesome is daunting, inspiring great apprehension or fear. That's the awesome I'm talking about. Especially after we looked at the book of Hosea. Now I know that none of us here is married to a prostitute. We don't have to be concerned about that aspect, but with the obvious exception of me, none of us here is married to anyone who is perfect either. There are t- <clears throat> that, that got a few points right there. There are times when, uh, when our wives can be grumpy. There are times because, I don't know, lack of sleep or something, they can be sharp-tongued or gruff. Maybe, maybe their looks or their form aren't the same as that younger version that you married. Maybe there are times that we feel like they're more interested in something else. Maybe a, a book or a class they're taking or a craft project or gardening or whatever than they are in us. But think about it. None of those things is anywhere close to what Hosea dealt with. And none of them are anywhere close to what God deals with from his bride. And yet he says we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I don't know about you, but I am regularly challenged by that verse. You know, there are times when my wife is getting ready to leave to go someplace in the car and I know it's going to take more gas than what's in the tank. I don't necessarily want to go fill that gas tank for her. There's times that I've worked hard all day and I just want to relax. I don't want to take out the garbage. One of the reasons that she married me. You can ask her that story, okay? I don't necessarily want to massage her ankle and foot. The only relief that she gets from the pain that she experiences in that ankle and foot. I'd much rather just sit and relax. My fleshly nature wants to avoid those things. I read a book several years ago. The author said that he and his wife were sitting in the living room one night and he offered to get them ice cream and he goes out and gets bowls of ice cream and he's he's bringing them back in. He's carefully examining, trying to decide which one has more so he can keep it for himself. And it suddenly dawns on him, here is this woman who, from his perspective, I've been married to for three decades, who has loved me, who has borne my children, who has taken care of me, who has done my laundry, who has darned my socks, and I'm going to begrudge her a little bit of ice cream. Our fleshly nature has a tendency to push back, doesn't it? It takes so much less effort to be selfish, doesn't it? And yet the word is still sitting there saying, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Author and pastor Kevin Miller in Discipleship Journal some time ago, he said this, one thing I know, God has called me to be a husband. That means he's not going to call me to something that destroys my ability to lovingly care for my wife and my children. 
For example, a few years ago, I was invited to join the board of a Christian organization. I really believed in the work and I wanted to help. To me, even being asked felt like a dream come true. I was ready to start the day before yesterday. But as I talked with my wife, Karen, she pointed out all the Saturday meetings and evening phone calls that would come with the position. With her in graduate school, the family already felt stretched and time for just the two of us was at a premium. She didn't think I should join the board. I didn't want to hear that. I grumped at her and felt irritable inside. How could I say no to something that would please God and perfectly match my interests? For three days, I went back and forth between yes and no, not sure what to do. What helped me finally make this grueling decision was to pray, God, what specific things have you called me to do? One answer was love your wife and children. If I joined the board, I realized I couldn't fulfill that as well. As much as it hurt to say no, I had to turn the opportunity down. My specific calling as a husband became a protective boundary. First Corinthians 13, verses 4 and 5. We're going to go through this really, really slowly because I'm going to comment on every few words or so. Love is patient. Husbands, you ever thought about that idea? How, how, could, how could I be more patient with my wife? And think, of, think in terms of how patient Jesus has been toward you. And kind. What's a, what's a tangible way that I as a husband can demonstrate my kindness? And again, think of it in terms of how kind Jesus has been to you. It's not arrogant. Am I ever arrogant toward my wife? And keep in mind that Jesus didn't think that he was above washing the feet of his followers. Or rude. When was the last time you did something rude to your wife? Do you need to do something about that? It does not insist on its own way. When was the last time I insisted on my own way without listening to her? And how can I keep that from happening in the future? It's not irritable. You know, I have to ask myself, how can I be less irritable in dealing with her? Or resentful. Am I ever resentful toward her in any way? See, those are just a few practical ways that love gets worked out in our lives. When we become aware of those shortcomings, if you will. We want to we deal with them. We want to we overcome them. We want to get past them. Let, let me be really clear here. You all know that the Greek word for sin means to miss the mark. So if you miss the mark in doing what you know you're supposed to do, it's sin. So if you don't love your wife the way Christ loved the church, you're sinning. Now, I'm not trying to make this stronger than it should be, but I want to make it every bit as strong as it should be. Marriage is not primarily about getting your own needs met. That wasn't Jesus' motivation in going to the cross. And so we want to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Now, lest the gals think I've forgotten about them. Ephesians 5, 22 and following, right before the husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, it says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of his, the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
couple of things. First, this whole submission idea in our culture is a foreign concept. And if this was, was only mentioned you know, one time in Scripture, I might be willing to kind of gloss over it. But it was twice right there in Ephesians. It's also in Colossians 3, wives submit to your husbands as in fitting to the Lord. Titus 2 tells the older women they're supposed to teach the younger women a number of things, including being submissive to their husbands. 1 Peter 3, 1, it says, wives be subject to your own husbands. That's the English standard, the NIV, the KJV, and the New King James all say be submissive. Um, Five different times this specific thing is brought up. You know, what I said earlier, that there's not a lot of specifics in Scripture about marriage. Oh, there are things that we can learn from. There's examples, good and bad. But there are not a lot of specific commands about marriage in Scripture. There just aren't. So if it tells us something five times the same thing, I get the impression God's trying to make a point here. Now, before some of you get upset with me for being chauvinistic here, let me tell you what this doesn't mean. I need that, uh, that cartoon up, if you would. Now, as the superior sex, it is my duty to get my way all the time because as the man, I am better than my little wife and she is inferior. She does everything I tell her to do at all times. And right now, she's apparently trying to question my God-given authority over her because I clearly requested bacon on my, with my eggs, and yet I see no bacon on my plate. I'm so sorry, sir. I'll do better, sir. I'm so sorry. Don't give me sorry, woman. Give me bacon. Okay, that's what it doesn't mean. All right, I want to make sure that we're all together on that. Wives, submit to your husbands. What does that mean? It means I choose to follow my husband's loving leadership. People hear the words wives submit and immediately go full Joan of Arc, of course. But he and I are equals. We love each other and we work together as a team. If it comes down to it though, he gets the final say and I trust him. So yeah, he is the leader of our family. Is it difficult for me sometimes? Sure, but it's beautiful, God-honoring and effective and very countercultural in a world that tells me marriage is all about meeting my needs. There's a lot of um, bad teaching about this whole submission idea. Too many think people, you can just get off of that one. Too many people think it's the first two uh, panels of that cartoon that I just showed you. It is not. That's not what it means. Think about it, guys. If you really love your wife as Christ loved the church, demonstrating that over and over and over and over again every single day, then submission is a non-issue. Any woman would willingly follow a guy like that. No question. So although the wife is clearly told to submit, the primary responsibility in the marriage relationship lies with the husband doing his job just like the primary responsibility in our relationship with the Lord lies with him, not with us. We love God because what? He first loved us. Don't misunderstand. That doesn't leave us without a responsibility. It doesn't leave wives without a responsibility. I'm just trying to put the emphasis where it needs to be. This submission really is supposed to be a, a living depiction of the believer's submission to Christ. And it's both a, an inward and an outward submission. That means it has to come from the heart, 
but at the same time, it has to be worked out in tangible ways in life. So from what I've read and seen, one of the best ways to express this submission is through honest, genuine respect. Ephesians 5, it says this, let each, of, each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. See that she respects her husband. If you belittle your husband, and I'm not even talking about verbally necessarily, you have no idea the damage that you can do. When you put your hands on your hips and give that little huff, when you roll your eyes and give him that look, when you speak less than positive behind-the-back things, those things show a clear lack of respect. And again, let me make this really clear. If we miss the mark of what Scripture says, that's sin. The good news is we know what to do with sin. So let me tell you something, and I'm about to break the unwritten rule of guys. I'm going to tell you what appears to be an almost universal truth about men. Of the research that I've seen, most men, at least at some level, feel like a failure. At the very least, they feel like they don't measure up. That's true in the marriage relationship as just in general. And that's, I think, one of the reasons that why most men are so competitive because we want to show that we do measure up, want to demonstrate that. The truth is that many men feel like little boys who need approval. And please hear what I'm saying. I'm not telling you that this is right, that it's good, that it's part of God's design. I'm just telling you that it's reality. And there's a bunch of guys that are sitting here right now feeling pretty uncomfortable because I'm saying this, because I'm not supposed to say this, but I think we need to talk about it. Let me put this in the context of what I'm talking about here, marriage. Most guys would say, I don't know how to be the husband that you need or want me to be, so the easiest thing for me to do is to withdraw. We feel inadequate, we feel unqualified, and so... The simplest solution is to shirk the responsibility, to just let it go. And I'm not saying that we get out of the marriage relationship, but there's certain aspects of it that we just kind of let it go. So I'm telling you, ladies, encourage your husband. Show him the respect that the Bible talks about. Let him know that you're with him. Let him know that you think he's something special. If you do that, do it consistently, it'll work wonders for your marriage. Guarantee it. Let me take this a step further. Most guys are willing to do something once, maybe twice, maybe even three times. But at some point, they get to the place where they feel like, this really isn't something that I can do well. And so they back off from it. It doesn't matter what it is. You know, you can talk about pottery or baseball or whatever. After we've tried it a few times and had some not good successes, we back off. Truth is that there's a lot of guys that do that with marriage or at least certain aspects of marriage. They don't feel like they're very good at it, and so they try to avoid it. I'm not saying, again, that they bail out of the marriage relationship. There's certain aspects that just don't feel qualified. I feel inadequate. I feel incompetent. But see, the guy who, who tried something, I don't know, golf or painting or ping pong or whatever, and didn't do very well, but had somebody who came alongside and said, you can do this, that's the guy that stuck with it. And maybe he's not world-class, but he did find out he wasn't as bad at it as what he thought he was. And he stuck with it. 
and kept after it. There are very few people who can do something well immediately or even quickly. Most things take work, practice, perseverance. It's just that simple. And having a cheerleader, an encourager, can make all the difference. Wives, I'm telling you, if you do that for your husband, there are no heights that he will not scale for you. Guarantee it. One more aspect for the wife, and then we're going to close. I have heard some people say, not here, but I've heard people, some people say that Bible, the Bible never tells us, tells women that they're supposed to, directly tells women that they're supposed to love their husbands. And that is a true statement. There is no verse like the one that we read about husbands love your wives. There's no com- com- comparative verse uh, to that for, for women. But, and this is a really important but, um, Titus that we read earlier about older women teaching the younger women, one of the things, the first things there that's listed is they're supposed to teach the, the, the younger women how to love their husbands. So if they're supposed to teach them how to do it, Obviously, they're supposed to do it. Everybody following the logic here, okay? Just want to make sure. And again, I, you know, I, because I've heard that concept stated before, it's like, well, yeah, it's not direct, but it's pretty obvious that it's there. I just wanted to make sure we got that. So where does, where does all this leave us? I think that the point that I really want to emphasize here in closing, is that no matter which role you play in the relationship in marriage, whether you're the husband or the wife, you cannot do any of this on your own. You can't. Husbands, you cannot love your wives as Christ loved the church unless Christ is empowering you to do it. There is no possible way. Wives, you cannot Love and respect your husband the way Scripture indicates that you're supposed to unless Christ is empowering you to do it. So I think because of that, it's incumbent on all of us to keep orienting ourselves toward the one who relentlessly pursues us because without him, we're sunk. We need to recognize the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our only hope to live out this life that he's called us to. And finally, let me just again reiterate the purpose of this message. We believe that the word of God is powerful, that it will accomplish the thing that he sent it forth to do. So I'm proclaiming the truth of God's word into and over our marriage relationships, fully expecting that it's going to act like that fire and burn away the things that are not supposed to be there, that hammer and destroy the lies of the enemy. Let's pray. Lord, today, as we have heard your word proclaimed, God, we have recognized anew that we fall short. Lord, every one of us here, whether we're in a marriage relationship or not, falls short in our relationships. And so, God, we ask that you would forgive us. But, God, we also ask that you would empower us by your word, by your spirit, and cause us more and more to fulfill the truth of your word in our lives. And, Lord, we thank you that you will because you're so faithful. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
All right, we're going to receive communion together, and I'm going to uh, start by reading from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Again, we believe that Communion is more than just symbolism, that somehow we are receiving something of the person of Jesus Christ. If you've received the Lord's forgiveness into your life and you're not holding unforgiveness against somebody else, please join with us. Um, the outer ring is grape juice. I'm just telling you that. I know we're all normal people, regular people here, but I always forget that one. So outer ring, grape juice, inner ring is wine. Those that are serving, please come. Come.